I always love saying this. We can edit that out, right? Yeah. <laughs> it never gets edited. <laughs> Hey everybody, Microphones of Madness, I'm Rodney, over there across from me is Steve, Hey. and today we are talking about Griots, Sisters of the Spear, a Sword and Soul anthology edited by Milton Davis and Charles Saunders. Uh, we'll be talking about the first nine stories in this anthology in this episode, but first, just overall thoughts, what'd you think, Steve? Um, I like this book, I liked it a lot. Um, it's definitely different than the previous volume, the first Griots. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the styles of stories and storytellers are, are more varied, and we have a broader depth of type of story that we had than we had in the previous anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I agree. Um... Several authors we've read before in the first Griot's anthology uh, make appearances, but uh, yeah, definitely different in tone, uh, different in the types of stories being told. Um, you know, the first Griot's was just a straight sword and soul anthology, right? And tended to lean heavily toward your basic sword and soul or sword and sorcery tropes. Uh, Sisters of the Spear is an anthology featuring primarily uh, sword and soul stories with female lead characters. Uh, So the types of stories being told, really for for the focus to have narrowed, the types of stories have broadened. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to see what how different authors approach having a female protagonist in these types of stories. Um, a, a friend of ours, a friend of Lily, actually, had told us, well, it shouldn't matter um, that the protagonist is female or male. It should just be a story. And, and while I agree in theory with that, I think that having female protagonists opens up the types of stories that can be told under the sword and soul ages. It's funny because you have a lot of the, the, the men who are writing the stories um, have a, are a lot more action oriented in the stories. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that because they're coming at their protagonists from a different point of view, that the stories seem fresher than if you had, substituted a uh, female protagonist for a previously written male protagonist and just just uh, change the pronouns change, around. Yeah, change it up. Right. It's more of a thought exercise that people have to actually think a little bit outside of their comfort zone. Not mm-hmm. people, but men. Men have to think a little bit outside of their comfort zone to write the female protagonist in this milieu. Yes, and and that was one of the things we were commenting on as we were reading the first half, is that difference between the the female writers and the male writers tackling basically the same subject matter. Right. And we'll get into the discussion of the stories themselves. Right. There's Mark. It's the first story. 
Yes. Went for the segue anyway. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so the first story is marked by Sarah A. Macklin. Uh, what's interesting about this, this was a great lead-off story. Um, every time we do an anthology, I always like to focus on the lead-off story because that's what sets the tone for the rest of the the book. And, yeah, Marked is a great example. It has, it has almost perfectly balanced would be the words I describe it. It has, it has action. Um, it has a unique storytelling style. Sets the theme. And it's, it's just really well done. Draws you into this, this world. The, the basic plot is that you have a warrior woman comes into a village. Stranger from out of town. Real basic idea. However, this story is told not from a an omniscient narrator's perspective or from the character of Sleeping Leopard, our warrior woman, but from the perspective of the one of the survivors of the of the story itself. Uh, at right. this time, this the story takes place when the narrator was a young child. Right, and he's um, recounting his experience with Sleeping Leopard. Mm-hmm. And it's, in a way, it's kind of an interesting way of telling this particular Sleeping Leopard adventure. But it also functions as an origin story. The main character, or the narrator, not the main character. Sleeping Leopard is the main character. Right, Well, because the narrator eventually decides he wants to become a hero as well. Mm -hmm. Follows, Follows Sleeping Leopard's example. Yeah, one another interesting idea that's that's used in this story is the fact that Sleeping Leopard is was a mercenary at one point and did many things in the pursuit of filthy lucre. Right, she did some foul stuff, mm-hmm. and for every innocent she killed, she bear, now bears a mark, and she must rescue as many innocents. As she has killed, she has to balance her scales, mm-hmm. which is um, not something you see a lot of in sword. The sword. I'm just going to say sword and sorcery because uh, there's not enough sword and soul that I've read to to make this broad generalization. Mm-hmm. But you really don't. Well, you don't see Amaro balancing the scales. You don't see Conan balancing the scales. I mean, they just do what they do, and the fallout happens, and they either pay for it or get paid, depending on what happens. Right, right. And then there's this... This story has a theme of a debt to pay. Right. I mean, she she lived a life of, of you know, for lack of a better term, sin. Mm-hmm. And she's got before she can she can move on. She needs to balance that out with good deeds. Mm-hmm. And it makes Sleeping Leopard kind of a reluctant protagonist, almost an antihero, right? Because you know she kind of she still has free will, mm-hmm. but she kind of doesn't <laughs> because right. you know that's a big debt, and it can only be paid by whittling it down one by one. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, free will is a bit of an illusion of in its own right. So we we all have to balance the scales, of, so to speak, you know, in our own life. We only have certain options we have to choose, and those options are determined by what we've done previously. Oh, that's true. But in this particular case, when she rolls into town and this kid ends up being kidnapped by um, these hyena devils. Mm-hmm. No, these um, are demons. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. And she, for a second there, she's like, why, I, you know, shit happens. Why would I have to go and deal with this? And then reluctantly, she does deal with it. She could have said no, moved on, and done the next one. But because she has to balance those scales, she has to, she has the choice of no choice. Right. Well, also, you know, the child being the only, you know, the child, the victim in this particular scenario, being really the only person in this village who actually accepted her as she was. Right. So there's, there's that aspect of, well, it's, this is also a, a much more personal kind of debt. Right. And you, you kind of get the feeling that, that this was the, this one was different from the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because you could, you can really, well, not me, but, uh, the author, uh, Sarah Macklin, really has a vista of possibilities to write Sleeping Le- Leopard stories from the protagonist, from the victim's point of view. Mm-hmm. I mean, she could do this forever. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really certain that, that that particular method of storytelling, while very fresh as the intro to this book, I don't know how long you could do that. Well, yeah, the reason I'm saying that is because you have like uh, the Conan stories are all connected loosely. Mm-hmm. Later on, they were they were put in in chronological order, but when Howard wrote them, they were you know different stories, and he described it as being it was as if Conan had told them these stories while they were sitting around the campfire. So they just came when they came. Which is kind of what you can do with with Sleeping Leopard, but have instead of having it from her point of view, you can have it from you can have it from a victim point of view, or you can have it from the 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 evil sorcerer point of view. How I got my ass kicked by Sleeping Leopard. Right. Well, yeah, I can see that. I can see that as an overarching. You can even add like a bookend story to a collection of Sleeping Leopard tales, right. where a, a griot is collecting stories of this heroic character. Right. You and, definitely have a lot of potential with, with not only with this character because she is an interesting character, but with just the way that it was written and presented. Oh yes, absolutely. Great opening to. Sisters of the Spear. Yeah, really set the tone. The Antithema by Dennis Brown. Now, this one's kind of interesting in that um, you really kind of have to be a a bit of an ancient history buff (laughs) to to understand where all of this is taking place. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming this is somewhere in North Africa. 
That's that was my thought. Um, it's it's during the Etruscan period, right? Um, and we have this basically city in the desert where we have a multitude of different cultures interacting. Right. We have Etruscans. We have um, Northern Europeans. There are apparently Chinese. Right. Um, and and Africa. Right. And all it's like the entire world has come together at this one point. Um, and we are told the story of a African warrior woman. She's a gladiatorial slave. Yes, she is. She she was a, she was a warrior. She was uh, enslaved and forced to fight in uh, gladiatorial combat for the amusement of the rich, powerful, and and unseemly. Right now, the the Etruscans are the uh, hold the political power at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese are there. Uh, have no power, but have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And there is a uneasy truce between the Etruscans and um, some African nation. Right. And that's kind of the political climate we find ourselves in. And this woman, um, Aware. Is that how you say her name? Aware. Aware. Yes. She is from the original inhabitants of the earth. Like her Mm -hmm. people are the the very first people. And being so, they have abilities, not full on powers, but abilities that are superhuman. Right. Effectively, effectively like a. Like a demigod type of character, you know, like a Captain America, yeah. That sort of character. Not, not quite, um, not quite Superman, but more or Wonder Woman, but more like Cap, right? Mm-hmm. Performance. Yes. Um, and the Chinese prince is madly in love with her. Oh, madly, madly. <laughs> and he's also her owner. Mm-hmm. But he has I, I would power. set you free were it within my power. Right. The political system prevents him from doing that, and he has enough honor not to just flat out force her to marry. Oh no, he wants he wants it done the right way. Right, and this pisses off his wazir, mm-hmm. his his advisor, who has been advising him since he was in in clouts. Um, does not like the fact that he wants to marry this slave. To the point where he plots against her, mm-hmm. which is where basically we pick up the action of the story. Right. The ruler of the city has a special, I guess, I suppose, a yearly gladiatorial contest as part of this citywide celebration. Yeah, this is the big one. Yeah, the this will be the the one to to end them all, as it were. Uh, meanwhile, the wazir is has a surprise up his own sleeve and tries to have a wary uh, killed. Right. Meanwhile, 
uh, it fails terribly at it. Never hire thugs. No, well, these guys were supposed to be like top notch, not just you know the guys you hire on the street. These are these were supposed to be top notch, well paid assassins. Yeah, but uh, yeah, they were they were no match. No, our illustrious king has taken it one step further. Instead of just a gladiatorial contest where they pit gladiators to fight each other in various themed battles, right. he has also gone out and captured a supernatural creature of the wild, a, a legend even among Awares people, <laughs> and has forced this creature to fight as well. Yeah, so you got to wonder how he was able to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it, th- this guy is the Rat King, King of the Rats. Yes. Uh, he's basically a god. Um, was pretty damn powerful in that ring. Mm-hmm. Um, it, he was shrugging off warriors left and right and gave you know the, the creme de la creme of the gladiatorial fighters a run for their money. He's killing them as well. Mm-hmm. You gotta wonder how they managed to get the Rat King in the in the arena in the first place. Well he was not very happy, so it had to have been some sort of trickery. Yeah. I mean they let him they let him into the arena and the first thing he says is like as soon as this is over, I'm coming to kill you, pal. Which, which is great because not only do you have this knockdown, drag out match going on in the arena, but you have panic. The whole stadium, the, the observers just start panicking because the Rat King's kicking everybody's ass, and when he's done with them, he's coming for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's only a matter of time. Meanwhile, our brave and noble prince has decided that he's had it enough of the Etruscan shit. Yes, and who wouldn't at this point? And invades the city. So there's this this knockdown dragout fight is going on inside the arena. There's a fucking full-scale invasion going on outside of the arena almost simultaneously. What was the uh it, it was the African tribes kingdom <laughs> That had invaded, not the Chinese prince. Correct. Correct. Now, he, they ended up becoming allies at at the end. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because for some somehow the Etruscans violated the the uneasy truce. They built up troops at the yeah. border. Yeah. So they they were getting ready to 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 go further into Africa. The the African kingdom. Mm-hmm. I forgot what they were called. They just said no way. It, this is this was an interesting story, in that there was a lot of complex machinations going on at, at all the different levels. Um, there were a lot of interpersonal relationships going on uh, that hinted at this being just a small slice of a much much larger narrative taking place. Um. This 
you had the relationship between the Etruscans and their particular allies, and you had this poor Chinese guy who was uh, kind of stuck in the middle of everything, right. and then you had you know their relations with the African king. Here's the thing that I really enjoyed about it was the Rat King himself, mm-hmm. because having him in there, you get you got to focus on the differences between the, um, her people. Mm-hmm. The um, and through Amina, I can't pronounce that. Um, who have respect for non-human races? Because in this story, non-human animals were also intelligent, right? Um, and they hear people lived in harmony with them, and would never have thought of capturing the Rat King for amusement. And then the invaders, the Etruscans, who just look at them as fodder and monsters. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because when when the the battle's going on in the arena, she basically comes up to the Rat King and and says, "I'm sorry that I have to do this. Your people and my people are cool with each other." And the Rat King says, "Yeah, I'm sorry too. I know all about your people, but just know that after I kick your ass, everybody else is going down as well." Correct. You have a lead-off hitter, and then you have somebody else you know, knock a double in. Yep. So now, now you got a guy on third, guy on second, and third up, the Nightwife by Carol McDonald. I think this one sends a run in. Just I, to I, go know, with the baseball anthology. As, <laughs> as the third story, as the third story in the anthology, um, you know this one also strikes. A very different tone. Um, I will say that I particularly am not a fan of, you know, obvious religious references. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I believe I believe according to uh, Ms. McDonald's uh, bio in the back that she does tend to write toward uh, Christian fiction. Yeah. Well, you know, they happen, and it it wasn't. Like completely uh, left behind, insane. It was, right. it, it was, you know, it was mentioned, mm-hmm. but it wasn't beat you over the head with her. With no, her it, was, it was, it was very subtle. It was, it was tasteful. Um, oh, I, I like this story. Yeah, it was a very interesting story. Um, the twist at the end, I really liked uh, because it just it. Uh, initially, you're you're reading it, and and it feels kind of like it has that folk tale feel <laughs> that a lot of good sword and soul stories have. Yeah. Um. Even even some you know fantasy and and sword and sorcery tales have a just a hint of like a folklore, um, oral history type of thing, rather than you know, this grand. Epic, right? Well, that's part part of the appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have we have a warrior queen. Warrior queen. Uh, she takes on a new consort because it's demanded by the culture that she has so many husbands. Right. She's um, a little bit older. She's a little long in the tooth. She's a little long in the tooth. She doesn't really want the husband, but it's expected of her to take one. So she goes out and she finds this absolutely gorgeous guy who's who really 
nice and and truly loves the queen, but he has a bit of a problem. But he's honored to become her her consort. Oh yeah, and they and they grow close. He he he's actually a good hearted person. But he still has a problem because you know he's not just sexy to humans; he's sexy to evil spirits. Yeah, man, he's like parasexy. Um, so he has this, this spirit, they call it a night wife, which is uh, a type of disembodied ghost, I suppose. It's uh, almost like a succubus, but yeah, kind of like a succubus without the vampire qualities mm-hmm. who comes in uh, and she is very jealous of anyone who spends any time with this young man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, drives anyone who comes, you know, any female who comes close to him is just is run off through threats of violence, actual violence, etc. Um, she ends up, the nightwife ends up possessing the queen's daughter, and they because the queen's daughter also lusts after her her mama's yeah. new husband. Yeah, <laughs> they money to watch videos of this shit. Oh yeah, this is this is some serious <laughs> serious family drama going on here. But she, so yeah, so she she volunteers. Uh, I'll I'll take care of it. I will drive the night wipe away, and really she does it to get with with the, with the kid. Yeah, because she thinks, oh well, you saved my life. Well, I, I will I will right. marry you instead. And he he wants none of it. Right. He really like he really loves the queen. He really loves the queen. You know, it's just like he has no interest in anyone other than the queen. Right. No matter what they do to try to capture his attention. Um eventually the night wife, as I said, takes possession of the princess's body. They kind of cut a deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll we can work together, and we both get what we want. Right. Um, that doesn't work out too well, as everybody pretty much figures out something's up. Well, because she becomes very wanted. Mm-hmm. Starts she'll basically sleep with anybody at this. Yeah, point. she has she has appetites that must be sated. Yes, and. Yeah, that is that is beginning to become a problem for her family. So, the queen, upon the advice of her servant, calls for a a witch from a kingdom that she just recently conquered. Calls her in as as like an expert. And says, hey, you know, look, I'm really sorry that we kicked your country's ass. But we got to get this nightwife out of my daughter. You know, what What can you do? And she's like, you know, yeah. I can do that for you. I can do that for you. For a price. Well, she doesn't even say that. No. <laughs> That's the unspoken part of the bargain. All right. And... Again, we, we come back to, to a theme that becomes very prevalent uh, 
in this anthology and in the first Griots anthology that magic has a price. Yeah, and and that is definitely a a sword and sorcery trope. Yes. Well, really, it's a weird fiction trope. Mm-hmm. And it and magic usually has a price that that people are unwilling to pay. They think they're willing to pay until they actually find out what the actual cost is. Well, yeah, but they only find out the actual cost when they've already started to pay it. Right. Exactly. Because, you know, if you say, if you, you use this magic and it's going to damn your soul to hell, which is not what happens, but I'm just saying mm-hmm. that to simplify it, you're not going to say yes. You don't make right. the deal with Faust, or Faust doesn't make the deal with the devil, you know, just knowing that it's all going to go sour. It just starts to go sour, right? During during the uh, the fallout, and in this case, the price is vengeance for what happened to the country. Yeah, and really, yeah the 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 witch uh, in this story really could have ended it at any time. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a sadistic quality there. Well, I think that that vengeance um, has a bit of a sadistic quality to it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's one of the tropes that that when uh, the young prince is is uh, vying for vengeance for the loss of whatever that his friends always say no. You cannot go, you cannot seek vengeance. It blackens the heart, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, that is definitely one of the tropes of vengeance is that it corrupts the Avenger as well as the avenged. Mm-hmm. And speaking true. of magic having a price, the next story on the list is uh, Joe Bonadonna's the blood of the lion. Wow! Yeah, and this story, this story is all about the cost of of magic. Yeah, like from Jump Street. Mm-hmm. This is the aftermath of of having used magic to solve your problems, right? And what we have is we have a uh, a pair of characters, a brother and a sister. The brother has decided to defend their village that he would undergo a ritual that would transform him into a enormous powerful lion. Right. To defend their village from another lion. Right. He's basically turns into a weird lion. Right. And, you know, and we're led to believe throughout the story that the, the whole thing is that he has to change back into a human before uh, the sun goes down. The sun goes down. Or so he will be almost the opposite of being. Right. And there's only, she only has two uh, magic beans left that will actually transform the lion into her brother. Right. 
and they're always on guard because the smell of blood will make him transform. Mm -hmm. And they are in the midst of the quest to undo the spell. But that's where it opens up. Mm -hmm. It actually opens up with him having turned into a lion because they were ambushed. Right. They, they were ambushed, and he had to turn into the lion to help fight off the attackers. Well, that's what you think, but you come to find out that once it, he smells blood, mm -hmm. he turns into the lion automatically. Right. But we don't know this at, that, at this point. Right, right. You, you get the details of his um, transformation little by little as the story progresses. Mm -hmm. And and at first, it seems like, wow, he could turn into a lion, and that's really cool. And then you find out then, a little bit more. <laughs> and then, and by the time... And a little bit more. And by the time the whole story comes out, you're, you just feel for these guys because they really... They're fucked. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, it was a horrible thing to have to do. And then his sister undergoes the same um, ritual in right. order She's, to save her brother. Right. With it the caveat that she, when she did it, it was in circumstances where she was unable to obtain any of the blood beans. So right. she wouldn't actually, she would not be able to turn back. Right, and it's 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 an interesting uh, juxtaposition of their personalities, whereas the brother has this habit of not telling the whole truth to save people's feelings. Uh, his sister is impulsive, right, and and an act of impulse and desperation, she undergoes the ritual to become the lion, and does not uh, fully prepare and go through the way of transforming back. Right. So she she transforms, and she's just automatically stuck. Now, to be fair, her brother was going to be burnt alive in front of her. Right. Oh, I, you know, I didn't say it wasn't justified, <laughs> but it was still it was still rather impulsive because um, you know it's in, it's actually one of the lighter moments. Interestingly enough, <laughs> inserted in there, and, you know, she takes the thing, she turns into the lion. She's like, "But wait, I <laughs> forgot to get your blood." The, the weird woman is just like, uh, "Hold on, wait, okay, bye. We'll just deal with it later." <laughs> right, right. And and this is also one of the 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 rare sword and sorcery types of stories where it's not the, the magic user themselves who are inherently evil. Our weird woman is very kind, okay. very generous. Um, even, you well, know, I just, call her a weird woman instead of a sorceress. Well, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, she, she's genuine, genuinely good hearted. Mm -hmm. Um, and she, she pledges to help. I mean, she's not one of those, well, you know, you made your bed, now you're lying in it. Right. Ha, 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 She was like, oh, I know the woman who did the transformation. We, we, we knew each other. She was a good person. 
Oh, I'm too bad she died before she told you how to fix everything. Yeah, well, you know what? You guys. For you. you know, you're stuck as a lion. Your village needs a, a weird woman. Um, yeah, I think I'll just go with you guys. Yeah, I mean, it really, and it fit the tone of the story. The story is very lighthearted. It, for such mm-hmm. a serious subject matter, mm-hmm. and uh, for fairly dark happenings, mm-hmm. um, it's very light-toned in terms oh, yes. of the writing. Yes. There's a lot of banter back and forth between the brother and sister, um, even between, you know, when they, the character of the sorceress is introduced. Her banter is, is also lighthearted. Yeah, and, and there's um, never any point where they give in to the despair. Mm-hmm. That personally, if this happened to me, I'd be like sucking my thumb in a pillow fort. Yeah, but um, so there are moments where they almost give in to the despair, but it's like, ah, oh, buck up, camper. Yeah, get through this. Right. It's it's definitely got that lighthearted. Hey, punch in the shoulder. We'll get through it. Even though the 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 violence in this story in this story is pretty graphic. Oh yeah, well, I mean, the there are lots of you know, balls, people. Yeah, <laughs> tearing of throats and intestines spilling. I've noticed that uh, one of the favored methods of execution in within this anthology is the spilling of intestines. Spilling of intestines. Whereas the whereas the first griots was, you know, what the fuck is up with wizards? This anthology, I would say that the sub-theme sub is how not to hold your guts in place. Right. There's a lot of people who need a couple who need a second mm-hmm. <laughs> to lop off their head to put them out of their misery. And so we go from the price of magic to the price of vengeance in The Lady of Flames by Latrika Cross. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, in, in a single sentence, this is the story of bloody and divinely ordained revenge. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we begin with a secret society of sisters calling down a goddess to say, please bless her on her path of retribution. Correct. The, the, the last uh, surviving um, family member from the royal house mm-hmm. um, is, has been secreted away to the secret temple of Sekhmet. Mm-hmm. And it is finally, they called Sekhmet to get her blessing to enact revenge upon the usurpers. And Sekhmet goes... Damn straight. Burn the fuck out of them. <laughs> it's basically what she says. It's like, look, sis, <laughs> if I could come out of here and help you do it myself, I would, but I think you got it covered. Right. I'm going to send you somebody to help you out. Mm-hmm. And so she does. And this this orchestration of the vengeance. I mean, you have to, and it's almost given this like Mission Impossible kind of yeah, feel. It's, it's definitely got that caper 
spy caper kind of feel to it. They crawl through sewers and go in through the the back door and there's traps and they have people things set in place to avoid the traps and faints from armies so they can get the real mission accomplished. I mean, mm-hmm. There's a lot of a lot of stuff going in here. It's definitely plotted out very well. Oh, yes. And and really, it's a very it's a very brief story in in regards in in comparison to some of the other stories in this anthology. Yeah, there's some long stories in this anthology, mm-hmm. but this one is 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 really short and to the point. It's like the initial encounter with Sekhmet takes up a good chunk of the story, mm-hmm. and then the you know, enacting of the plan or the planning of the plan takes up a really good chunk. By the time we actually get to the execution of the plan, there are only a few pages left in the story. And, and we is, we are taken along at a breakneck pace from the, from the enacting of the plan to the final encounter. Right. And then it's kind of funny because the final encounter kind of leaves it hanging. Mm-hmm. I mean, their goal, they make their goal. Mm-hmm. They do what they, they, they set out to do. But there's, in the, the creation of this plan, certain marriages might have been arranged right, and refused. Mm-hmm. And certain threats may have been made if those marriages don't go through. Right. And we, we leave it at there's all these strings hanging yep. because we haven't gotten out. We've, we've accomplished our goal, but we haven't gotten off the board yet. We're still in play. Right. But you know, we get, we get her story though. I mean, she's ordained and she gets her revenge and really what happens beyond that isn't all that important to the story. It's not to the story. It is to her. It is to her. But it's up to you to figure out if she is independent enough and strong enough to fight her way out of that situation or if she caves in because it is a hopeless situation that she finds herself in. Mm-hmm. That's either up to you or a follow-up story. Yes. Next we come to another tale of revenge. Revenge, another big theme in this story. In this anthology, Uh, we have a subtle lyric by Troy Wiggins. Now, to be perfectly frank, I thought this story was really going to go in a completely different direction than it ended up going. I really thought this was going to be more of a romantic tale. I did too. I thought there was going to be like a wow. Yeah, yeah. Because that's kind of how it felt in the beginning. It was like a. Two women getting to know each other. Yeah, you had your meet cute, and you know that. And this lady, the one lady, is always just kind of like appearing, and you know, almost, with, almost like almost stalking with <laughs> gifts, and uh, you know, where did you get that? Oh, you know, I just got it. Here you go, have it. Yep, and you know, it's like, okay, well, this. This is very interesting in tone, and 
it goes from this this very lighthearted kind of story, and it just does a complete one eighty and turns into a very dark story. I know. <laughs> There's this point where they, they they're on their midnight tryst, and you think, oh, this is going to happen. They're going to do it. Mm. They're going to kiss. We're, like, oh, we're shipping Saunders snuck a little erotica up in here. <laughs> we're shipping these two really hard at this point, right? And it turns out the older one's an assassin, right? <laughs> Who worked with the younger one's mother, right? <laughs> Who was an assassin, <laughs> but we didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Not only an assassin, but the best assassin, right? The world's best assassin. Um, one of the most feared assassins across the globe. She ended up disappearing slash died. Right. And so our our mysterious courtier is not trying to seduce this young lady. She's trying to win her into her confidence so she can take her to a secret cabin out in the middle of nowhere where she has her mother's killer tied up. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't be laughing at this, but it like really like when you say 180, it really is 180. Mm-hmm. Because it, it does. It goes from this is almost a romantic moonlight ride to, you know, it puts the lotion on its skin. I mean, they're talking about being on horseback together, and you're just like, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, well, they are kind of a cute couple. Yeah, let's, let's make this happen. And no, she's like, hey, you know, this is the guy that killed your mom. My, my f- penultimate gift to you. you know, kill him if you want. And yeah, and then we get this this real. Um, pretty rather intense scene of interrogation and finding out the truth and this struggle with what do you do when you, you're, you grow up without your mother, you know, your mother's been you know, disappeared. You find out she's been killed and you're staring into the captive face of her killer. Well, and not only that, but you find it all out within a matter of minutes of each other. I mean, you, you, you basically are told that the way you've lived your life and all of your beliefs about your family mm-hmm. are wrong. Right. And, and it's the, the, you know, kind of Harry Potter trope that, oh, oh you're a wizard, Harry. You're an assassin. Like, <laughs> you're the daughter of an assassin. Well, that joke sucked. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that made this particular story really great was that 180. Yeah. And speaking of urban fantasy, we go into uh, Zambetto by J.C. Holbrook. I'm giving the double thumbs up to this one. You're giving the double thumbs up to that? This one was kind of unexpected. I really unexpected. Um, I was not prepared for, you know, a, a modern world set story. Um, I mean, this is the seventh story. We were almost finished with the first half of the book. 
you know, most everything is either, you know, historical, like the antithema was like a sword and sandal type of thing marked. And, and a lot of these were secondary world stories. Right. You know, the fictitious Africa. But now we have Zambetto, which is a real Africa, a modern day Africa. Mm-hmm. But we find out that even modern day Africa is still rooted in those ancient traditions and that our technological world does not protect us from. Modernization is not always the greatest thing. Well, I think one of the the main themes of this story is um, reconciling modern with the traditional. Mm -hmm. Especially in a place like Africa, where outside of Africa, you really, and we've talked about this before, as as an American, you get most of your information is misinformation. Mm -hmm. And people don't realize that that modern Africa is a modern, full of modern countries with Mm -hmm. modern people doing modern things. Right. And, uh, but on the other hand, there are very firm roots in tradition in Africa um, Mm -hmm. with tribal identities that cross country borders because the, the countries that were carved up were carved up by Europeans, not by um, native Africans. Right. So you, you do have a lot of, I'm not going to say tribalism, but a, a, an attachment to, to roots there. Mm-hmm. I feel you get that everywhere except for maybe in America because we're all imports here. Right. But what is the, when... except for the natives. But another another theme is you have an old way giving way to a new way mm-hmm. within within the context of the tradition itself. Yeah, I don't think that that the story is um, judgmental mm-hmm. um, of modern over the traditional or the traditional over modern. I think it just um, makes a, a, a statement that, it, that they exist with each other, mm-hmm. and you know, progress progresses. And it's it's more of a theme of um, how the tra- traditional and the modern overlap. Yeah. And really, you know, they 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 overlap, they intersect, and you know, there's no inherent conflict there. Right. The the so what you have is um, you have this village that every once in a while gets plagued by this creature called the Zambetto. Mm-hmm. And as best I can figure it, it is an a animated hay bale uh, that spins mm-hmm. and wreaks havoc. And it originally was used as a vengeance tool. Well, a tool of justice, yeah. Um, so people who committed crimes, especially crimes against women, um, i.e. rape, um, were basically sent to the the Zambetto got him. Mm-hmm. and but every once in a while the Zambetto would lose control and you would have special um, 
people in place who knew how to combat the Zambetto. Right. <clears throat> and originally, our main character's sister uh, just hunted them and killed them. Right. But as it turns out, um, our sister, our main character, who's is, a banker, a banker, who's a banker, you know, rather unassuming, has a more powerful version that you know the Zambetto is kind of symbiotic with with human beings in that you know their you know desire for vengeance and justice brings them forth and they are supposed to also be able to control them but you know the the old way to do it was just to kill them right and they would just appear when they were needed again mhm and now um our main character, our banker, has discovered she had the power to entrance them for capture. Right. So it's a more humane sort of monster hunting. Right. Then, as it turns out, that this is, you know, music and dance was how they originally controlled right. these creatures in the first place. Right. So, and that was a skill that had been forgotten. Right, because it was just much easier to have the skilled hunters hunt them. Right. But now, the, the new way, which is the old way, this is where you reconcile the modern with the traditional, it takes a village, really, to do it. Because you have the, the one who goes out, which she does, and lures them in. Mm-hmm. And then the the musicians in the village, the drummers, take over. Right. And they also realize that within the drummers from the village, there is a young man who has made his own drum, and he actually is the one that has the power to bind. Right. It's Chester Thompson. <laughs> Sorry, he's one of my favorite drummers. So, and in a lot of ways, this 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 has that little you know clever nod. Music soothes the savage beast mm-hmm. because it it really does. Oh, well, it's cool because you had it, it was also a break from um, what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't any um, gore or bloodshed. Um, there was a monster, but the monster wasn't. Um, slain or or banished. It was tamed and brought back mm-hmm. into the fold. Yep. yep. And a harmony between uh, a harmony in nature, as it were. Yes. Very, very refreshing. Mm-hmm. Next, we have The Price of Kush by Sylvia Kelso. Yes. This was a, a very political sort of story. We're going back to Egypt. Back in Egypt. Um, we have you know, three factions warring it out. Right. So you um, have the, the lower Egypt, which is really mm-hmm. north of upper Egypt. <laughs> right. Um, and then you have, they had taken over... Um, Territory from Kush, 
which would be Lower Egypt, and Kush is Somalia, modern-day right. Somalia. And then you had the third faction, who were the... Greeks, maybe? Yeah, maybe. But they, they, I, I got the feeling that they were more invaders who got... Yeah, Greek, Greeks make sense, honestly. A powerful enough faction, they're merchants. Yeah, Greek. Mm-hmm. Greeks make sense. So you have the three factions, um, and they're going after one of the kings. He is retreated to Thebes, and the guys right on the border with Cush are like, look, you know, this is the time to strike. Ally with us. And we'll go and take him down. And it becomes this really harsh and complex web of intrigue because our queen is trying to decide whether or not, you know, what course of action is going to be the best. Well, she's a new queen. She's a relatively new queen. She's fairly young. I believe uh, I believe she's only like 18. Right. She's technically, she's not the queen. She's the regent who will become queen mm-hmm. um, when she comes of age. Right. Even that, even in that, it's complex. Right. And um, she is faced with the, the reality of the situation, which is not great for Kush. No. Um, just the, the different factions... Almost every scenario that plays out, Kush is done. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the martial scenarios. The thing mm-hmm. is, she's kind of a warrior woman. Right, right. So those martial scenarios are the first thing that pops into her mind. Yes. And her best friend and sister, I believe. Got pregnant by a Greek. Right. And yet she's like, look, you know, great guy. You'd like him. And it turns out that she really does like him because he's very clever and no, he's and comes up with all these great battle plans. Like a Greek. That's what Greeks do. Yep. <laughs> They're very and clever. At first, Odysseus at, was very clever, remember. That's how he used mm-hmm. to drive. And at first, uh, everything's going well. They believe they have the favor of the gods. You know, a little too well, in my opinion. I thought that the first mm-hmm. half, when they first set out and um, took, what was it, the second cataract? Right. Um, I thought, wow, that just went really way too well. And if this doesn't go south for them soon. I'm not going to like the story too much. Fortunately, it does go south for them. Oh, yes. And all of, we have all of these gods getting involved. Yeah. And it's like, look, you know, our, we have our gods, you have your god. And then this totally, this goddess who is totally unrelated to any of it comes along and is like, look, why are y'all rolling up in my hood? <laughs> and it's funny because they have the way the, the gods are working in this is they're really powerful in their own territory 
But mm -hmm. once they're out of their territory, they really make their power goes down exponentially. So you have uh, yes, they're they're rolling with what Horus. They're rolling with Horus, and it works great when they're still in Horus's territory. Mm -hmm. But once they hit nor north of that, and they go into Ra's territory, you just don't. Which really isn't Ra's territory. Right. But there's enough of his worshippers there mm -hmm. that they that the Horus can't, can't hold on. Right. So they have to end up striking a deal with the third entity, which they probably not ought to want to have done. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's the price of Kush. Yes. Now, Sometimes. overall, you know, one of the things I liked about the story was the complexity um, and, and the way the divine intervention was handled. Mm -hmm. But I thought that it did seem to drag on a little bit. Yeah, I think what, what helped was definitely having a, a more than passing familiarity with Egyptian um, folklore and mythology. Mm -hmm. and I think it helps to have a little bit of knowledge. You don't have to be, you know, rolling up with the mummy and shit, but it helps to have a little bit of, of knowledge of what's going on in the geography and how Egypt was united and all that great stuff to, to enjoy the story. Definitely well-researched. Mm -hmm. it, it did feel very much like a, a costume drama. Yeah. Yeah. You would, like uh, this would probably with the right cast, this would make an excellent film. I'll tell you what, I'd see this over gods of Egypt any day. Well, yeah. But uh, of course, I'd see, I, I'd see myself wiping my ass on the toilet over Gods of Egypt any day, but maybe that wasn't a great compliment. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, the final story in this half is Old Habits. Yes. Omari Ket. This is a Kikonga story. Yeah. Woo. So Kikonga has, has entered into the, the Griot's uh, anthologies. Well, why not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is, you know, Milton's baby. Why not have Milton's other baby make an appearance? His other other baby made an appearance in the last one, right? <laughs> Milton's got and, a big big family. <laughs> Milton's got a lot of babies. Um, yeah, so this is a key conga story, and we have a retired mercenary. You know, she has uh, gotten married. They have a child. Uh, she is trying to settle into domestic life. But as in Kikonga, mercenaries are a wild bunch of characters. Yeah, they are. Especially the ones that roll with Omari Ket. Um, oh, yes. The wildest of the wild. She's out shopping, you know, doing some grocery shopping one day and, and lamenting when she bumps into Omari Ket, who is an old flame, an old running partner. I got a job for you. 
And he's like, hey, you know, she's like, what are you? What the hell are you doing here? He's like, ah, oh, this guy has hired a bunch of dudes to travel down south, and and there, I don't, I don't really know. All I know is he's he's paying eighty stacks. Of, he's paying a lot of money for this. That's right. Lots of latinum to be had. So uh, yeah, you know, you're the best archer I know. Why don't you come along? And, you know, and she goes through this whole, you know, conflict of, you know, well, yeah, I kind of want to, but, you know, i got to go home to my husband and child. Well, and here's the thing is, she and Amari, they were a little bit more than friends. Yeah, they were a thing. Yeah. And now and, she's uh, married. And now she's married. Now, as soon as Amari shows up, she stops lamenting domesticity and starts pining for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she oh, yeah. realizes she loves her husband. She loves her daughter. Right. And, you know, she remembers why she got out of that life to begin with. But it's a lot of money. But it's a lot of money. As, as uh, what's his name said in Back to School, it was a really big check. Mm-hmm. Ned Beatty. So she goes home, and you know her husband's a blacksmith. He's been plying. He's also a former mercenary, right? He's a big but guy. He's retired. He's a big guy, strong guy, and uh, yeah, he's at home plying his blacksmith's trade. And he's like, "Hey, you know, what'd you do today?" He's like, "Oh, you know, I I ran into an old friend." He's like, "Oh, really, an old friend?" Yeah, and she tells him the whole story, and he's like, yeah, you should do it. He is a lot more supportive than I would be. Right. <laughs> um, you know. Well, she doesn't, he doesn't really, you know, to be fair, he doesn't really know about, you know, Omari. Right. And their, their history. You know, he's just like, oh, yeah, you never told me about him. Yeah, that's kind of a red flag right there, isn't it? <laughs> yep. I'm just going to say he's a little bit but, more supportive of her than I would be. <laughs> I'm not a perfect person. Right. But, yeah, he's very he's very supportive. He's very encouraging. You know, even when she herself is sitting there going, no, 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 what about what about this? What about that? And he's like, oh, look, we got all that covered. It's, right? it's a lot of money. And and really, it's one, it's a lot of money. Two, I've been seeing it in your eyes. You want to get back out on the road and kick somebody's ass. Yeah. And, you know, look, you get all this money, you can officially, officially retire. This can be your last hoorah, and I don't want to hear another damn word about you wanting to be out on the road again. <clears throat> and it becomes that sort of that sort of thing. Like, yes, one more hurrah before you settle down. Me, I'm fine. Yeah, and you know, I mean, he's he's he, t- really taken well to domestic life right, and, and he, retirement. He like makes her a sword when the sword that she gets ends up being lame. Mm-hmm. He buys her a a war horse, like not just any war horse, but like the most kick ass war horse available. A Malian war horse. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a war horse that will fight for you. Mm-hmm. Fight for you, fight with you. 
Yeah. If it if it gets drunk enough, probably fight you. Yeah. And yeah, he's he wants to make sure that she come one, she comes back. Right. Um, and, and he also wants to show her that he loves her. Oh yeah. And so she takes off with Omari, and they go on this adventure. Now the thing is, is that you know the rest of the mercenary band, hired by wizards, by the way. Yeah, wizards from Fez. Yeah. Never trust a Fezian wizard. I thought that was the guys that bought the sword. The sword. These were different. No, I, thought they, I thought they were Fez. Well, the guys who sold to the sword were lame too. Yeah. So what you have is really Omari Kent is there as comic relief. Yeah, but he was kind of comic relief in his own story. Yeah. That we read. Oh, they're Kashian, sorry. Right? I think so, yeah. Kashite. Yeah. So, yeah, he's there to, I mean, not even really be a badass like we know Omar Ket is. He's there to, you know, swoop in at the last second, you know, take out, you know, a mook and make a one-liner. Yeah, he's he's kind of like uh, Jack Sparrow. Yeah, in a lot of ways, he has that Jack Sparrow type of quality, where he's not really the main character, right? But even in in the story from Kikanga, the anthology that we read, that was the Omari kept story. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was a great fighter and everything, but he was a bit of a goofball and had a bit of a reputation. I mean, he it, that was a a funny story, mm-hmm. and it was like fun. He's a fun character to have. I like Omari Cat. When I saw his name, well, you remember, I texted you. Omari yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and they go along, and they are a great little pair. Um, the mercenaries are not too kind, you know, kind to having a woman in their band and it being equal partnership and whatnot. So Omari lies to them and says, yeah, that's, that's my lady. And he plays and it for laughs. He tries to get with her. Half he up. plays it for laughs, and he's like, you know, you you are playing my lady. You know, you should. Uh, we should. We should be method. Right. <laughs> and, and she's like, you back the fuck off of me, or I will cut your dick off, pal. <laughs> and that's exactly how it went down. Um. So so they they end up um, going to through a couple of territories that were hostile to their hope, to the leaders of the, the caravan. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, uh, they, she has to take care of herself. And she, after some attrition to the party because they get attacked, right. uh, she ends up becoming the navigator. Mm-hmm. And then um, when they finally get to where they're going, it's an impenetrable wood mm-hmm. that only the magic of the Kushite can can uh, get them in. And because the our our magic user friends are in possession of a small sliver of the creator's shattered axe. Yes. <laughs> 
which is, I, I imagine that the sliver of metal is probably, you know, no bigger than the cap of a pen or something like that. I'm, I was picturing like a, like a lead from a mechanical pencil. Or something like that. Like a sliver, literally. And it holds so much destructive power that it scares the crap out of uh, our, our hero. It's like, what are they going in here for that they need something like that? Right. Well, it turns out what they're going in there for is bad news for everyone. Mm-hmm. If you can just, just destroy an entire swath of dense forest for miles and miles and miles, lo and behold, they come across an ancient temple where there is a statue made entirely of metal from the creator's axe. Yeah. And which is a effectively a world ending device. Right. And it turns out that our The evil wizards will get it. <laughs> yep, the, the, the the employer is an evil wizard. Our our heroes are working for the bad guy. Which you kinda knew from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And sword and sorcery hijinks ensue. Right. And our lovely heroine gets to go home to her husband and child. And Omari Ket is resurrected. And Omari Ket is resurrected. Because the guardians of said statue convince her that she is playing the wrong side. She's like, yep, I believe it. And really, at that point, the money everything. What does it matter if you have a shitload of money if there's no world to spend it in? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of... There are people who will make that rational decision and fight tooth and nail against their employer to prevent the end of the world. And then there's people like Iago Clearwater mm-hmm. who I believe would have said, oh, well. I still got the money. I'm being paid. (laughs) Even if I only have a year to spend it, I'm being paid. Yep, and that brings us to the end of the first half of Griot's Sisters of the Spear. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.